You know, recently we were at a retreat and I've never had women do some of the things these women did of having questions, you know, offering me money when I didn't give an immediate answer on what was going on in the times we're living in. Uh, she goes, what is it, money? Is that why you won't answer me? Like, I have money, I'll, you know, and I was like, I've never had money thrown at me. They were pulling. They wouldn't let me go to the main session group to hear what everybody got out of the retreat. I mean, there were so many different aspects to this group of pulling. Now, my thing was, I told Steph, I said, wow, this is an unusual group of people. They are really hungry. And she said, no, they're not hungry. They're desperate. And so there's a difference between hunger for the Lord, hunger for the Word, hunger to know things, and desperate. And these were wild-eyed, crazy going to get what it takes, offer me any amount of money, just all types of different things, did not care if they socially threw their graces away. They told me, I don't care if they were calling you to the speaker, you're not going to leave. I'm not leaving and I've got to leave. So you're going to tell me the answer to these things. Desperation. And that's the times that we're living in. And that's among believers. So we're going to take a look at something tonight called the last days. And we were thinking about this in terms of the protection promises, the things that we've been taught. Do they go away for you during the last days? How are you able to sustain them? What you're up against? I always do better if I have kind of a heads up on things. So on our discussion of the last days, our introduction is there's a lot of S's that describe your reaction to the last days. It feels surreal. I think we were discussing that, that it just has this surreal feeling like, is this is what things are supposed to feel like? Like, it's an odd feeling. Is this really real? I mean, you can't really make up your mind. Is this a movie? <laughs> is this stuff really going on? Have people lost their sanity? I mean, it's all kinds of a feeling around it. You're just like, is this how it's supposed to feel during this time? You know, where are we on the timeline? Another thing that people feel is shock. If things move really fast and they start going down the tube really quickly, it's a shock that comes over people. So we dealt with how to handle shock if it comes over you, something attacks you. The other thing is shaken. I was looking at the last time I taught something similar to this, and it was in 2001, in September. Everybody was very shaken. You can imagine that that morning was Tuesday morning, and that evening I was speaking. And so you see the world events and you start feeling that thing that's coming on the world of everything that can be shaken will be shaken. And then the last one is you're thinking, surely not. <laughs> Just surely not. Surely not this is what's going on. So I'm going to say you're feeling this mixture of reactions to it of surreal, shocked, shaken, and surely not. Like I just can't believe that this is where we are or this is how it's going. So we're going to take a look at this and we're going to ask ourselves, where are we on the last day's timeline? When it comes to the last days, can you pinpoint like, okay, we're at this point. What does scripture have to say about that? So there's major amounts of prophecy on it in your Bible. There's a lot of verses that describe the condition we're in. So we're going to head towards that point of asking ourselves, where can we touch on the timeline and say, well, this has happened. This has taken place. Well, you know, there's a book in the Old Testament that I'd invite you to read, and it's Daniel. And Daniel is your Old Testament version of Revelation. So it's very unique to see, oh, this is what the Jewish rabbis would pull out of. It's the book of Daniel. And it has major amounts of prophecy. But another book that I was invited to start peering into is Ezekiel. Brother Jacob said, oh, I read Ezekiel when I want to know about the end times. So what makes Ezekiel special? What does it give us on the prophecy of the times we're living in? Well, it tells about the return of his people to the land. Ezekiel tells about the return of his people and the return of his glory. Wow, that's amazing to think that Israel could again house the glory of God, like it was in the ark, like what Solomon experienced, that the return of his glory on the land, where it's not so much natural strength, but you feel that supernatural strength of the Lord. And then Ezekiel brings something else. It's the only place you can find the prophecies on 
Gog and Magog. So with those ideas, I'd invite you to look into Ezekiel. But I'll tell you one of the best kept secrets, one of the most hidden nuggets of prophecy is in the book of Zechariah. And Zechariah is the one that's very specific. Like I'm saying, they did not give a general prophecy of this is going to take place in the end. Zechariah gives you number counts. It gives you all types of different names. Zechariah is a fun book to read on biblical prophecy and prophecy that pertains to the days that we're living in on the last days. Isaiah is a great book. And you find ideas about the millennial kingdom and how if you died at age 100, you're going to be thought to be in some deep sin, cursed. Because you're not meant to die young there. The millennial kingdom is a reign of peace on the earth. So, that moves us from the Old Testament to the New Testament. And I would say that I enjoy reading what Jesus said about it. He speaks on it in Matthew 24, Mark 13, Luke 12, and chapter 21. So it's both Luke 12, chapter 12, and both Luke chapter 21. You can remember them because they're reversed. And so Jesus is going to tell you what the end's going to be like. And then, of course, you have the book of Revelation. And what's wonderful about that, it says, Blessed are those who read this book. The reason it says that is because you just wouldn't read that book if you didn't have to. You would just say, I'd rather not know all this. That's in that category. So Revelation gives you an actual blessing if you read that book. So that puts it together for you. It's touched on. This concept of the last days is touched on in other places of Scripture. But I wanted to give you the major portions of your Scripture and where you can look to just give yourself an idea of. These are the verses that we have that tells us what it's going to be like, what the timeline will be like. Now, why do I call today the last days? Do you know in the Bible where that concept comes from in the Old Testament? Do you know what verse or what prophet talked about it being the last days? It's one I haven't mentioned. You should know if you read the book of Acts. What prophet? It's Joel. 2, 28 through 32. So you know you have nuggets about the last days because he talks about the last days. So the last days had relevance during the time of Joel. And then Acts quotes it in Acts 2.17, right at the beginning of Acts. It quotes Joel of saying the last days. And it says a cute little way of expressing it. This is that that Joel spoke of. So if you ever have that expression, this is that. <laughs> Well, so I may say to you tonight, this is that. And so the last days had relevance during the apostles' days. So I would tell you that if they considered it the last days or spoken to it in Joel, if they said this is that, and Peter said his sermon of this is that that Joel spoke of, then if Peter said it was the last days in Acts, then I would say this is the last of the last days. But that still didn't define where we are on the calendar. It's been the last the last days now for 2,000 years. And Peter said, don't start mocking it, because just about the time you say, they've been saying this for a long time, it's not going to happen. He said, then it'll spring on you. So Peter writes you later, and he says, don't get into that. So just receive it. It's the last days. It's been the last days for quite a while. But it's more the last days than it was yesterday. So it gives you that approach of us settling in on places in Scripture. So you don't have to panic. You don't have to worry of, oh, I don't know where we are on this timeline. I wonder if I'll get to get married and have children. Those are mainly the things that we think of. But I want to invite you into the best way to be able to face certain things in your life. So I'm going to say in Joel 2, verse 30, where it talks about it, Joel's prophecy was fulfilled but not consummated. Unique words. In Acts 2, 16 and 17, when Peter declared this is the last days, the last days was when Peter said it, but it still waits ultimate fulfillment. It's a paradox. Let's use these words. It's already, but not yet. Already, not yet. So that's how they express it. We're looking at something that is already, 
Not yet. It's both. It's both true. That's what makes paradoxes fun. And so the term has relevance for us today. Let's say it's the last of the laster days. <laughs> it's safe to say it's the last days. So I'm not up here pushing something and bearing it down on you. I'm inviting you to look at it. Every time something major takes place or transpires in the world, I would say it's good to bless the Lord. Okay, so that you take the time to have the significance of what's happening in the world speak into where we are in Scripture. Yeah. So, we're caught in the middle of two mountains of prophetic perspective. There's two mountains, and we're somewhere in the middle. Another way of saying it is in Daniel 9, when it says that the Messiah will be cut off, and then it talks about his return, that we're somewhere in that 2,000-year gap. And that's Daniel 9, 24 through 27. Daniel's scripture here is a masterpiece because he actually gives you a mathematical equation of when Jesus Christ would come to the earth the first time. And if you enjoy puzzles, this is one of the most intriguing things you can look into. It's Daniel 9 telling you at this point the Messiah will be cut off. You have people that they've taken that to the exact day that Jesus was riding the donkey into Jerusalem. And one week later, they're going to crucify him. So when you're dealing with that accuracy, that amount of specific knowledge about the first coming, let me tell you, then the next verses to come in Daniel might be exactly on spot. But I have to laugh, they're only two verses apart, but they're a couple thousand years of history in between. So you can't rush God, but at the same time, when he does show up, it's sooner than you expect. He's very unique in how he does it. So just like he came the first time, he is coming again. So I'm going to ask you to say there's going to be a literal fulfillment of prophecy. But at the same time, to get to the literal fulfillment, you have to have interpretation skills. You have to be able to interpret scripture correctly. Now this isn't quite the interpretation skills that you might use for other passages. I'm going to give you how I look at whether somebody is good at interpreting prophetic scripture in regards to the Messiah's second coming. And I'm going to give you what I use or how I measure it. But the Messiah's first coming, guess what? There were 25 major prophecies in the Bible about the Messiah's first coming. 25 major prophecies that were fulfilled in the New Testament. Now about the Messiah's second coming, there are 318 prophecies in the New Testament. So if Jesus came the first time and did all that he was going to do the first time he came to the earth, and only 25 prophecies carry the weight, how sure do you think the second coming is when you've got 318 so the very weight of prophetic interpretation bears witness that the second coming is very assured. The first coming of 25 had Jesus come on the earth, and it really took everyone by surprise. The way that he came, where it was God and man, that he didn't come into nobility, but he came in a very subtle way. The way that Jesus was prophesied all the different places he would be born. I want you to think in terms of his first coming and the fact that they were surprised because they were told that it would be one God. The idea that the family was going to say it was a virgin who gave birth to him. I mean, there were a lot of unique aspects around the first coming. I bet he does it again. I bet if he was so dramatic the first time, I bet he has a lot of great surprises for us the second. It's going to be very unique. The first one with the donkey... The second one riding a white horse. He has two different intentions. So the second coming is more overwhelming than the first and has the weight of prophecy. Where are those scriptures? So this is my personal rule of interpretation. The best way to interpret these hard-to-understand second coming passages, and the reason I know they're hard to understand is because how on earth could you have this many theories around it? Like, you can hardly nail anything down on the second coming because there are so many theories surrounding each piece of information about your timeline. I mean, you could spend hours on each part of Scripture. 
So if you're going to interpret hard to understand second coming passages, I would invite you to look at how prophecy was fulfilled the first time. I know I used this in Bible class when they were disputing something I said, and they were saying, oh, I don't think it's going to be literal. And I said, it's hard for me to believe that it's not going to be literal when the first coming had such scanty prophecies. When you looked at them and born of a virgin had nothing to do with the prophecy about the Messiah that you could tell. It was talking about Assyria attacking and it was a word to a king. But yet that was a messianic prophecy. So if that was literal and I went and I stood in a cave in Bethlehem and I thought about the shepherds that came out on the fields because of this one prophecy and how true it was that I'm going to say my biblical interpretation is that it's going to be a very literal interpretation of the second go around. If the first one was that literal, then the second one is bound to follow the same line of interpretation. So that's the way that I think is the easiest to interpret second coming scriptures is to ask yourself, would I have figured out how he was going to do it the first time? Look at those 25 scriptures. Check your interpretation gears. <laughs> Would you come up with, this was what he was up to by looking at those verses? I mean, everyone would have been screaming, context, context, context. You're so far from me. I mean, they would have had, oh, this is for sure just a symbolic meaning. But I dare say we shouldn't make the same mistake twice. If you would not have figured out the Lord's coming the first time, then I would say, I dare say for you to take the scriptures and poo-poo them and lighten them and distance yourself from the second coming. For instance, it appears very contradictory about his first coming. He will be from Bethlehem. He will be from Nazareth. He will be from Galilee. Oh, by the way, out of Egypt I will call my son. Tell me where he's going to be born. <laughs> so that's why they were arguing his birth constantly because Galilee is a long distance from Bethlehem, and especially on foot. It's bad enough to have cities all across their country saying this is where he'll be born, but add to it that, oh, by the way, we're going to call him out of Egypt. We're going to even put him as an international birth. It appears contradictory, but when you look back on it, you're like, that's genius. He was born in Bethlehem because of his senses. He ran down to Egypt because of a killing trying to take place. <laughs> they were after him. He moved to Nazareth and grew up, and his ministry was in Galilee. It touched on the prophetic keys. Every one of them were true. So, I would tell you to try to let the scriptures speak for themselves without too much interpretation on it. Only after the event can you see how it all fits together. But don't be afraid of it. You can see that you don't have to panic when you look at something like that. And so I thought that would help you because I've never heard anyone teach me that. It just made sense to me that if the first coming, how my prophetic skills would have interpreted it, then I should use the same skills in looking at his second coming. Agreed? So behold, he is coming, riding on a donkey. Behold, he comes riding on the clouds, shining like the clouds as the trumpet calls. Very different comings. It's going to be very different how they come about. I mean, to see him with your own eyes, it will be glorious. If you get to see him touch the earth, I mean, it'll take your breath away. So, where are we? Where are we in the timeline? I'm going to say if the disciples who spent their time with Jesus, and they could ask Jesus any question they wanted to, any time they wanted to ask him a question, any question they wanted to even think of that they could ask about the future, they didn't seem to know or understand the prophecies around his life at that point. They didn't seem to figure it out. And so I laugh at looking at the prophetic scales today and how people interpret them because even the disciples having Jesus in the flesh with them weren't able to piece it together very well. It seemed like even after his death that they were walking along the road and he had to explain to them, these are the prophecies about me. And these are the proofs of the prophecy explaining my life. I would have loved to have had Jesus' course in the proof of prophecies. I would have loved to see. He might have pulled more than 25 out and said, these told to me here. So let's move into how you can tell where we are. 
Now, the thing that you need to be looking at, do you know what on the earth that you need to be looking at to know where we are on the timeline? Jesus tells us. Yes. Hmm? Yes, he said there were signs in the sky. But there's been signs in the sky for quite a while. We will touch on that. But there's a geographical location that he said, this is your time clock. This is the timepiece to keep an eye on this to know when the end will be. What now? Yes, on Jerusalem. In Luke 21:20, I would say all eyes on Jerusalem. You know, it's sad to know that most kids today that have Google, they get Jerusalem mixed up with other Middle Eastern cities. Like I've had some of them be scared of the Jewish people going, well, they're Middle Eastern. And I'm like, uh, you don't even know how to begin explaining to them. The Jewish people, the Israeli culture is very similar to our democracy. Their structure of government is set up like Britain. So kids don't even have the Middle East distinguished out in their mind. And so if you took it from just the seculars and how much they're proud of their knowledge, I would say this is an area that they're very deficient in. Then you move it to believers. And sometimes it's kind of a shock to a believer to tell them, you do realize Jesus was Jewish. Sometimes they don't get that Mary was Jewish. But I think Maria was Catholic. And the Jews find that just shocking that there's not an understanding of the Jewishness of the gospel. So Jesus tells you that one way you can look into biblical scripture or prophetic scripture is he said, watch Jerusalem. Because when this happens to it, know that the time is very soon. Know that what's going to take place is near. All eyes on Jerusalem. And so from the point that Jesus left, we saw different things happen. Seventy years later, he had prophesied it. Jerusalem was destroyed. And then Jerusalem was rebuilt. Jerusalem was occupied. There's this great scripture in the Bible about the Holocaust. I had a friend over in Israel, and she said, I think I found a verse that explains to me the Holocaust. You want to hear it? Zechariah, first chapter. He opens up with this. And he says, the Lord was very angry at your fathers. So this was a point in scripture where children of Israel had gotten very entitled. They just felt like we're chosen and so we can do anything we want. Now, surely we don't have that kind of thinking today. That had kind of creeped into their mentality. They could live any way they wanted to because Jerusalem would always be safe. Nothing could go wrong with Jerusalem. It was God's city. In Jerusalem, they could act any way they wanted to. They could kill the prophets. They could live their life with all types of motives because of the fact that God had said Jerusalem was safe. The prophets began to tell them, don't think like that. And so this is one of those instances. It says, the Lord was very angry with your fathers. Therefore say to them, this is what the Lord of armies says. Return to me, declares the Lord of armies. So he's repeating the Lord of armies twice. Return to me that I may return to you, says the Lord of armies. Do not be like your fathers, to whom the former prophets proclaimed, saying, This is what the Lord of armies says. Return now from your evil ways and from your evil deeds. So this tells me that even if your parents don't walk with God, he's asking you to. He said, even if your family hasn't figured it out, even if your fathers were completely ignorant of this, even if your mother and dad don't understand this, he says, I'm asking you, return to me. And he says, return now from your evil ways and from your evil deeds. But they did not listen or pay attention to me, says the Lord. Your fathers, where are they? And the prophets, did they live forever? Like in other words, they came to tragic ends because where are they? He said the prophets don't live forever, so they can't just keep hammering them. You know, they just expected the prophets just keep telling them, you're wrong, you're wrong, you're wrong. But did my words and my statutes, which I commanded my servants, the prophets, not overtake your fathers? Like, I was very faithful, says the Lord, to make sure they had a word from me. But they didn't listen, and they didn't come to me. Do we have those type prophets today? They're calling out, saying, repent, get it right. He ends that section by saying, then they repented and said, Just as the Lord of armies planned to do to us in accordance with our ways and our deeds, so he has done to us. So Zechariah, the first paragraph, the first prophecy, tells you that after the fact, they figured out the Lord did exactly what he had said he was going to do. Now, I want you to skip down just a couple of verses from there. 
And I want you to see this and see what this says to you. Zechariah says, I saw at night, and behold, a man was riding a red horse. Now, does that mean anything in the book of Revelation? For I'm starting with this ideal, and we're going to end with it. And he was standing among the myrtle trees, which were in the ravine, with red, sorrel, and white horses behind him. Now, the colored horses will again go into end times prophecy. Then I said, what are these, my Lord? And the angel who was speaking with me said, I will show you what these are. And the man who was standing among the myrtle trees responded and said, These are the ones whom the Lord has sent to patrol the earth. So they responded to the angel of the Lord who was standing among the myrtle trees and said, We have patrolled the earth, and behold, the earth is still peaceful and quiet. This is a time that there's peace on the earth. Now I want you to see what happens next. Then the angel of the Lord said, Lord of armies, how long will you take no pity on Jerusalem and the cities of Judah, with which you have been so angry, indignant for these 70 years? And the Lord responded to the angel who was speaking with me with gracious words and with comforting words. So the angel who was speaking with me said to me, proclaim, saying, This is what the Lord of armies says. I am exceedingly jealous for Jerusalem and Zion. But notice this little verse. But I am very angry with the nations who are at ease. For while I was only a little angry, they furthered the disaster. Therefore, says the Lord, I will return to Jerusalem with compassion. My house will be built in it, says the Lord of armies, and a measuring line will stretch over Jerusalem. Again, proclaim, saying, This is what the Lord of armies says. My cities will again overflow with prosperity, and the Lord again will comfort Zion, and again he will choose Jerusalem. My Hebrew friend told me, she said, you ought to read this verse. Do you know what it's saying in the Hebrew? She said, Jerusalem had done wrong, and they were going to get punished. And so he was mad at Jerusalem. But then these surrounding nations, or these other countries, with these other nations who are peaceful, he said, when they punished Jerusalem, they went too far. I never intended for them to be punished to this degree. So because of that, I will return to it. I will have compassion. I will measure out the city again. I will have my cities overflow with prosperity. And I will again comfort Zion. And again, I will choose Jerusalem. She says, I finally understand. She said, God was angry with Israel. And she said, what Israel had done brought a horrible time in history upon them. But it was so much worse than what God wanted. And so his anger transferred. And he looks over and he looks at Germany now. And says, you're living in peace. And boy, when it came your time to punish, you punished without mercy. When you took your wrath out on the Jews, you beat them beyond what could even be understood. Poland, Italy, even Russia. Look what you've done. And the Lord says, I will gather my compassion and I will again choose my people. But he's looking and he's saying, look at these people living in fake peace. You know where he says there will be peace, peace. And there is no peace. And she says, to me, she says, this explains what happened in the Holocaust. That there were times when, in 70 AD, the Romans did this, Italy. And again, Hitler and the Germans did this. And so nations will rise up and they'll just take their anger out on God's people. But God says, I will again gather my people up. So when all eyes are on Jerusalem... Beware, people that hate the Jews, they're inviting their own judgment. They're setting their own standard of judgment. Because the very thing that got the Jews in trouble with God was being at ease and not doing what God wanted them to and just living life like they could, it's one big TV show, they could watch the rest of their life, just living and complacent, just doing nothing, just living life. And he says, so the people who punished Jerusalem for doing that, I look at them and now they're doing the very same thing that got Jerusalem in trouble. I know once the Lord told me, wake up my complacent people. Make them miserable. <laughs> wake them up, afflict them until they come. So here is an understanding of how God 
sees it, but also a unique aspect of the character of God, that human wrath goes beyond what God's does. God once spoke to me, and he said, never let your anger go past mine. As I can tell you, I'm doing this in the name of the Lord. I'm angry with this person for what they've done. And one time the Lord put a check on me because my anger went to a consuming point with this person. And the guy was wrong. Like to the point that I, as a pastor, I don't know how he'll stand on judgment day. But my anger went past a certain point. And the Lord, he spoke to me and he checked me. And I realized that I can't let my anger go past God's anger. And that's what you see people do. They think, I, I can punish unrighteousness. I have the power to do this. And they take it to a place that it moves the compassion of the Lord. You know, if somebody's misbehaving in here and I punish you, people are like, okay, that's just, that's fair. Angie finally got on to him. I thought she was just going to let him forever get away with that. And that's what the nations were saying. But if I punish you severely and I go past expectations, it causes people to go, oh, I feel sorry for you. Like, it goes past people thinking that's fair. They think, that went beyond what should have happened. And it returns the favor back on you. And what happened to the Jewish people is so horrid. The Holocaust went so far beyond that literally the compassion of God is saying that the anger of man surpassed him. Very unique passage. And very unusual when you think in terms of free will and the power of God. So Jerusalem will return to the returning home of the Jews. In Ezekiel 39:27, it says something will come over the Jewish people that they will start yearning to return home after 19 centuries. It's very unusual that in prophecy that it actually creates something in the Jewish soul to want to go back. You know, you hear them next year in Jerusalem. I sang the songs of Zion, crying because I wanted to be in Jerusalem. I can't tell you what that wailing wall means to them. They would completely gear everything about their lives. If they lived in Europe or if they were spread anywhere else in the world, they thought, we want to return to our homeland. And it brought that feeling inside of them, and that's God bringing his people back. So what about Jerusalem in regards to the end? It tells us that there will be the gates around the city, but it says that one gate will be sealed shut. It's because Jesus said the Messiah will come through the gate. Even the rabbi said the Messiah will go through this gate. So the Muslims said, oh, no, he won't, and they sealed the gate. So Jesus is prophesied to go through the eastern gate, and the Muslims took Hadot brick and sealed it shut. That's one way to stop a prophecy, so they think. I do remember after his resurrection, he had an unusual behavior when it came to doors and walls. Then there's something called the building of the third temple. You have Solomon's temple, you have Herod's, you have the third temple. There's a temple mentioned in regards to the end. Yeah, I was like, where is that prophecy? Ezekiel. If you want to read about the building of the third temple, it's Ezekiel 41 through 45. It's unique to see the Jewish rabbis and us as Christians understand that the temple will be rebuilt again. The sacrificial system will again start up. After 2,000 years of not being able to offer sacrifices the way the Lord had told them. And they haven't been able to have their temple. So prophetic scripture interprets that there will be another temple in Jerusalem in the future. And then there's this little thing called the red heifer. He comes out of prophecy in Numbers 19, 1 through 10, and he's very, very special. He is so special that they're going to use this one to kill it for a sacrifice. It's in Numbers 19, 1 through 10. And the requirements, the physical requirements for this, is so precise. Two years of age, listen to this, with no more than two black hairs on its entire body. And they have bred and bred and bred trying to find the perfect one that is so red that you cannot find any other color of a hair. You're allowed two hairs. And then they will offer the sacrifice. 
And then what comes in is the Antichrist will desecrate the temple. So you know that there has to be a temple before there's the tribulation. Because he will desecrate the temple. So you would say, wow, we know it can't be yet because no temple's built. Matthew 24, 15. Yet, we've heard that they built the temple. It's under Temple Mount. Wouldn't that be a shock? If you're counting on the fact, well, they don't have it constructed, and then you find out they've actually built it at the same level it was because they have a tunnel underneath the Temple Mount where you can go on a tour. Who knows what they've done? So prophecy is so much fun because there's shifts and movements. There's surprises. There's things you don't know. And if you told the Lord, well, I wasn't doing what you told me to because I knew I had another five years to play around and a little bit more seed I want to sow because the temple's not built. And then you find out, lo and behold, those Jews had it built underneath the city. It could happen. You could be in a lot of trouble. So the Antichrist starts up the seven years of tribulation. And then you're going to be looking at what Moss brought to light. You're going to be looking at what we were talking about, the astronomical event. And there's signs in the sky. It just means that God's going to give you things that are unusual. And I was thinking about in 2017, we started having double signals. Like, listen to this. Jesus said, listen to how he said it, there will be pestilence and great signs in the heavens. Can we say amen to that? So at the time that there's plagues and pestilence, there will also be signs in the sky. So I'm saying that might be a little bit of a double signal, that if they're talking about go out and look tonight, there's something unusual. Let's have a party and let's all look at this. At the same time, there's a pestilence going on. Jesus said those two correlate. Sure enough, things happening together, blood moons. There was a total eclipse in February of 2017. But listen to what happened in September of 2017. An arrangement of celestial bodies will occur on September the 23rd, 2017. On that date, according to many sources, the heavens themselves will be a tabloid of Revelation 12 in the Bible. Listen to this. Listen to this verse in Revelation 12. A great sign appeared in the sky, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet and her head a crown of 12 stars. She was with child and wailed aloud in pain as she labored to give birth. She gave birth to a son, a male child, destined to rule all the nations with an iron rod. He's going to have to beat everybody into shape. Mm -hmm. Now, on September the 23rd, the sun became inside of the constellation Virgo, which is virgin. It's the one up there of the mother. And... The sun moved to where it was inside the constellation. So it fulfills the woman was clothed with the sun. And then the moon will be at the feet of the virgin. So the moon lined up to where the sun was inside the constellation and the moon was at her feet, exactly like this verse says. And then it says there's nine stars that will be inside the constellation that will be a crown over her head. So it all moved to where the sun was inside of it. The moon was at her feet. And 12 stars, which was actually three planets, Mercury, Venus, and Mars, and then nine of the stars. So nine stars moved into that constellation, added to the three planets that moved into line with them. So in other words, you have the nine stars of her crown, but it added in the three more, the verse where it says, and on her head was a crown of 12 stars. You might um, think, these things are coming together. When Jesus was telling us that there will be signs in the sky. So with that and the movement and the tribulation, the Antichrist, there are many Antichrists. There are Antichrists through history and people have a lot of theories on who the Antichrist is. Some say he's already come. There's different ways to look at this, but 1 John 2.18 tells you the spirit of Antichrist is already in the world. So what's happened is that spirit of Antichrist has already entered world leaders all through history. So technically, you could say this guy was the Antichrist, this guy was the Antichrist, this guy was the Antichrist. It moves through time because the spirit of Antichrist falls on different people. The supreme Antichrist comes into the future time. But, you know, World War II, I would have sworn Hitler was the Antichrist. I mean, if I'd lived in Europe, I would have thought, this is it. It can't get any worse than this. So you have Rome, Berlin, Moscow, Axis. But the many Antichrist figures are Nero, Antichrist, 
the fourth, George the third, Napoleon, the Roman papacy, Mussolini, Hitler. You have antichrist spirits coming down through history. But on the latter day, you will have the supreme antichrist. It makes you think, wow, if these weren't it, I wonder what he'll be like on the final day. At this point, things start happening like there'll be an invasion to Israel. It tells us this in Ezekiel 38. The surrounding on all sides, Luke 21, 20. And then the horrible concept that the blood will be up to the bridles. In the field of Jezreel, if you've ever stood there, they'll tell you how many battles have been fought on the place you're standing. It's where Jezebel died, and it will be our final battle of Armageddon. And the blood will flow like never before. It tells us in Revelation 14.20, it will trod the winepress, and the blood came out even up to the horse's bridles. So, at this point, you're seeing the setup of how Jesus explained, if you want to know more about what's happening, this one place on the map is where you watch it. And he says, when they're surrounded, you know it's near. Jesus said, I'm not going to come back to y'all until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. In other words, Jerusalem, you need to welcome those that I send. You know, blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. You know, Zechariah says they will see the Messiah, and suddenly, as he gets closer, they'll see the piercings on his hands and his feet. Think about that. That was written before Jesus had come to the earth the first time. You could see that prophesied in the New Testament where somebody could have said, oh, on the second coming, they'll see the piercings that they made. No, it wasn't prophesied in the New Testament. It was prophesied before he had come the first time about his second coming. Wow. Can you imagine how the Jewish people will feel when they realize that their Messiah has scars and they'll understand the significance of those scars of what was done to him, how he was tortured when he came? You know, the importance of how we treat him and welcoming has a lot to do with how we fare. It raises the question in Scripture, and this is one of the most beautiful prophecies. And it's almost daring the Spirit of the Lord in a good way. Can a nation repent in a day? Have we ever seen it happen where a whole city repented? Like, I would be shocked to see our city, Brownwood, everyone repent the day. We would be saying, this is revival. Everybody repented. But the Spirit of God, by the prophet, is being asked, can this happen? Could we have that kind of a national revival that an entire nation repent in a day? You run these prophecies together and wonder how it'll be laid out. Is it at the moment they see his pierced hands and they suddenly whisper it through the city as it goes through the country? It's just like it was written in our books. Zechariah, he was the one. And the veil is torn where they can see him. The scales fall off their eyes. You know, it says in Zechariah that he will come to the Mount of Olives. Now, Jesus, remember when he takes off and he ascends, he goes, right where I've left you is right where I'll come back. And otherwise, you don't have to look for me in the jungles of Vietnam or the pastures of Texas or I'm not in New York in some synagogue. He said, I will return exactly where I'm leaving from. Prophesied by Zechariah that when he sets down, it will be an earthquake and it will split. And I was thinking of the split being vertical from there to the gate, but it's actually horizontal. It'll split. Well, that's going to be a powerful come down. I mean, when heaven meets earth, kaboom, it's going to open wide. And that's where he will walk down again. But this time it will be a little different. I might, should have not used the word walked. When you think of the army behind him and what he'll be riding. So as you're asking this, what happens to Jerusalem? It begs the question that we're all thinking, what happens to me? <laughs> That's the real thing that you came for. Believers. Oh, there's theories of what will happen. You know, there's theories that I've heard played out, and you can find scripture for them. There's paradoxes to it. That one will be a reigning, glorious church with a harvest and a revival, and we will occupy 
and we will bring the kingdom of heaven down. Or there's the theory that opposes it of, oh, the earth's going to hell in a heaven basket. Let's get the first train out. <laughs> I want to escape this horrible mess. I want to be in heaven. So you see two opposite ideals. One is thinking, I like this. You know, it's like the tribulation wasn't meant for me. It wasn't meant for the believers. It's meant for the unbeliever. And so one guy is thinking escape. And one guy is thinking harvest. Can we get a harvest going at these times? Other theories. One theory is, well, you can pull this one way back to, it's all symbolic. It's not literal. Revelation is completely symbolism. To the fact that, oh no, Revelation is true. It already happened. It happened in 70 AD. Or, you know, you can name Antipas, Antipas. I mean, they have all these guys and they say, these guys could have been it. Or you can say, no, it's going to have double fulfillment of prophecy. Or I might say it has multiple fulfillment. Like from what I've seen of prophecy, it reminds me of how the firecrackers start. You shoot the one Roman candle. But at the end, the fireworks show is kaboom. You let it all go at once. That's how I view prophecy. That the one wave that has come of prophecy is now beating the shores, the prophetic shores, of what it's unleashing in the world. Contrasting or opposing theories, people that have no wave theories, clear to those who think it's going to be prophecy being thrust upon the human history of what God is going to do. Theory, we won't be here. To the theory, what do you mean we won't be here? We're already living in the millennial kingdom. One of the guys that was believing that, when he said, you know, I don't believe my, you know, what I've said, he was actually, I think, referring to this, that he had thought that we were already in the millennial kingdom. Satan's not locked up, though. Yeah, and the evil gets come out. So you have the theory of what will happen during the tribulation. Will we be protected? To, I think we're all going to be beheaded and martyr out. So you have among this so many different places. If we had the Hall of Ministries next to the Psalm 91 offices would be Voice of the Martyrs. Both are barking the prophetic verses of what the end's going to be like. And we're asking ourselves, what's happening to me? Instead of asking, what can I do? <laughs> Contrasting or opposing theories are all over the place. So how do you prepare you're supposed to be prepared for this if you don't know what to prepare for. You know, how people have prepared for the rapture is, I'm going to get my credit card and run it up as high as I possibly can run my debt because I'm going to be out of here and I won't have to pay for it. They've gotten a good 20 years of working that debt off now. <laughs> how do you prepare? Let's really not bring a whole lot to the table about kingdom values and and God's will on that. I'm not going to say I think they put much time in prayer crying out for his will to be done every morning. How do you prepare? Let me ask you, what's happening to us right now? Where are we? Is this a trial run? It's like a few days of freezing to know what your house needs and doesn't need to kind of go through. This is what it looked like with no electricity. Is this kind of a trial run on the earth, this whole concept that's happened to us? To see how we respond to calamity and hardship, where our trust is. Are we prepared? How do you prepare? Is this a time that when this comes on the earth that it should send non-Christians rushing towards the Bible and towards God and towards the people of God? How's that working in mass proportions? Where are we? As we look at this, we've asked the question, like where can we put our finger down? So I'm going to point to a place that I think we can all agree. If I was going to point to a place on the timeline, I would say it's right here. And there went out another horse that was red. And power was given to him that sat thereupon to take peace from the earth. And when peace was taken off the earth, people started killing one another. And it was given to him a great sword. I think the one thing that I can assuredly say that has happened. Peace has been removed from the earth. 
So I'm not going to take the whole breadth, the whole height and width of the end times, but I'm going to ask you to prepare for this one thing in a practical way of Revelation 6, 4, when the peace is removed. Like, I've never seen so many people killing people. I mean, if you get on the news and you're interested in crimes, they can't even keep up with them. They're just, everybody's killing everybody. So how do you prepare for no peace? Let me tell you the danger you live in. When the peace is removed from the earth, you can literally feel it. We were talking to a, a couple last night, and they said, you know, when the COVID season started, when this pestilence started, we felt the peace come off the earth. And it's just been kind of wave after wave after wave. You know, we know that prophetically the enemy has a lot of wrath. And so he is just making good use of his time. So the question begs, are you making good use of your time? Like, what are you doing to play offense while he's playing a very deadly game? What can you do to help things turn out differently? To bring the best down. Like Abraham, he said, if there's 10 righteous, we can turn this around. I think we've got 10% in our country that really, really mean it with the Lord. I think we've got 25% that are at least Christian, but I think we've got 10% that are really sold out Christians or Christians with doubt that have a prayer life that it means that are bearing free to at least 30%. So I'm asking you in a practical way, what are you doing during this time? I'm not going to take it and say all this stuff is where we're at. All these things are, this is exactly where we are. But I'm going to say peace has been removed to a certain extent. It's not how it was. So this is the danger. This is what the Lord gave me. If the peace is removed on the outside and there is no peace around you, like people are not in peace, the environment's not in peace, what's happening around you is not in peace, it's wave and wave of peace. It's going to compound if you don't have peace inside of you. Because used to, society was in relative peace. I would have never known that the last four years of that presidency was peace compared to what now we're entering into. That it's more of a peace coming off of the earth in a way that we've never felt. Because I thought it was pretty chaotic all along is what I was saying. But now something has taken place where you can't find peace out there. But there's not a real good place to go for peace. So if you haven't gotten peace in your inner environment, inside of you, in your heart, let the peace of God rule your heart. Let the peace of God rule your mind. Then it's going to be compounded when things go on around you. So when I'm talking about preparation, I'm going to talk about it in one specific area that's huge. You must have the peace inside of you for what they need on the outside. I remember, and I'll tell you a story, this might help you, but when we were going to Israel and I was taking a team of college kids, the parents were going crazy that we were going into Israel. Well, to make matters worse, without me knowing it, the college here canceled the archeological dig that they had planned because Israel was under bus bombings at the time. And so I didn't realize they had canceled their program. We've raised the money and we're going full steam ahead. And they said, we don't even think that you can legally go there. We don't think the State Department would let you. And I said, oh, yeah, it's open. And so they had to work with their misinformation that they had been told that the reason it was canceled is because the State Department canceled it. Well, I made a joke, and I shouldn't have. These jokes get me in trouble. But I told them, I said, if you've never noticed the difference with Israelis and the Palestinians is they agree on something. When they lob those grenades... I said, they throw them at each other, and they throw them over the Americans. And I said, do you know why? I said, you won't read about them hitting Americans. They hit each other because we have the dollars, and nobody wants to wreck the tourism. When you go on a tour over there, you're putting money in the hands of both parties. Just if you go see Bethlehem or Jericho, if you go see the Jewish side, you're going to be putting money. They're very careful. They're very surgical in their bombings. So I was making that joke, and it kind of relaxed everybody, and they were late. I said, check the history. Well, that week, an American gets killed. I opened the door for that poor person. Because I used that as an example. You know, it's that tested by praise. Oh, yeah. 
you know, I was using something in the natural. I didn't say Psalm 91. I said, look at where the bombs are being thrown. The devil was like, I can change that. Okay. Yeah. So what ended up happening is the Lord began to deal with me. And he told me, why are you looking for a place to go that has peace? I told you to bring peace to it. And I changed the discipleship of my kids. I'm not here to look on the map for a peaceful place to take you. I'm looking for the will of God. If the Lord's told us to go into it, we will bring peace into the country when we go. And you can't just say that's a principle that works over time. It has to be led by the Spirit, led by your peace, led by your joy. And the Lord told me, take peace into the country. And we actually met the man in the natural who came up with a way to, to keep them from being able to blow up things. Actually, they were using their cell phones to blow up buses. And he found a way to blow up their cell phones in their hands. It was wrecking the tourist industry because you'd be there and kaboom, a building would go down or pizza restaurant went down. I mean, horrible things were happening around 2004, right in that period. And so I thought it was very unusual that we went into the country. We laid down a very strong trip to bring peace into the country. And it followed us. Because I'm not looking for peace in my life. I bring peace to people. You've got to change your mentality. You've got to play offense. So the world, the Christians, of this mentality of, I just got to get out of here because it's so bad, they have no peace. They have nothing to offer. And God has never had a little chat with them, evidently. Because they're looking for a resort to go to. They're looking for a place away. They're not looking for a two-week vacation. They're looking for a permanent vacation of where to live apart from this chaos. And I'm saying, the Prince of Peace lives in you. So this compounding thing that will take place is, this will be where your roof will fall in on your head because you're built on sand. If you don't have peace and you're full of anxiety, your roof will fall on your head because your foundation is on sand and you're not on the foundation of peace. You have to be built on a foundation of peace. Look at your feet. They are to bring the gospel of peace. And that's in combat it's talking about there. So as people are shaking and their roofs are falling in, it's because of what they're built on is not solid. If you're full of anxiety and can't hear God, what is your options? You just start screaming until somebody helps you. You scream or scream or you lay down and die. Neither look pretty. They don't film well. This isn't where you go, this is a courageous Christian. And then you've got the problem of if you die a coward, it's like dying in some vile sin. I mean, it's on a horrible list in Revelation. So you die being a coward? Because I've seen people try to do a miracle, screaming the scripture at the top of their lungs, and nothing happens. Because they're not in peace. So you can't hear. And so you use natural ideas of, well, I've got to get somebody that can. Oh, the devil will see to it. You're put in a place where you can't get to anybody. Because you haven't cultivated peace inside of you. So you've got to have the prince of peace inside of you. Let me give you the perfect example. Jesus and the disciples in the boat. And there was a storm. And their idea was screaming until they woke him up. And they woke him up grumpy. Because they woke him up in full anxiety and fear screaming at him. And he was more angry at them than the storm. He was like, how much am I going to have to put up with you guys? And let me just say, when peace comes off the earth, at whatever degree it's going to, if, if this is just a layer of peace coming off and it's getting worse, oh my, it's called living in a constant boat storm. Water's coming over the edge. You're looking at 50 ways to die. So Jesus spoke peace to the storm. Peace. You're bringing the peace to it. So, I was going to tell you how it works for me. I have to be very intentional about my peace. And my mind is screaming sometimes. And if it's not screaming, I'm watching movies of how it's going to turn out badly. And I have to stop the movies, clear my mind, take the reels off the projector and say, this is not what I feed myself on. This is coming in from an outside source. And I am going to watch the movies that the Lord has given me. And that's the promises of God. The faithfulness of God. The goodness of God. 
And so I would tell you, put in the work because you've got to be intentional. I think you think you're the only one that hears it screaming, so you need to tell everyone, I'm screaming inside. No, everybody's screaming inside. You're just not doing the work. So the problem is, you didn't practice this art in peacetime. So now you are stuck in storms. Because you have to do it intentionally. You have to change that voice and get peaceful. Remember that time when I was put under the assignment of finding someone that no one else could find? I had two things screaming, and I did what my dad said, and that's clear my mind. And I focused on the two words I had. I had a current word about that situation, and I had a word that was given to me that God was going to make things easier. And I put those two together, and I said, these are the two thoughts that I'm going to allow to be in my mind. I'm going to let peace be the governor inside of me. That's whether I think of governor, I think of us being on the Sea of Galilee and Steph's in the back of the boat trying to take the governor off the boat so that we can scare Shoshana, the Jewish lady with us. And Steph is like, if I can take the governor off, we can run this boat at full speed that we'd rented on the Sea of Galilee. I thought Peter may have walked on it, but we are hot-dogging it across this lake. I think it may have been Steph's birthday. Shoshana was screaming and hanging on to her hat. And that was so much fun. Besides the hole in the bottom of the boat, I told Shoshana, put your foot over the hole. Well, it even got more fun when the Israeli Coast Guard got after us. And so Steph's back there tinkering, Shoshana's screaming, we've got a hole over it, and I'm like, go, 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 we got to outrun the Coast Guard. <laughs> and so anyway, Shoshana came running into the bed and breakfast where we were all staying. We had not met her until I think we invited her on the boat ride and livened her life up, and she goes, oh, you'll not believe what those two girls did to me. They tried to kill me. She said it in her Queen's English of South Africa. They tried to kill me. Kill me. I've never had so much fun in my entire life. <laughs> Shoshana became a good friend. I'm telling you, you've got to let peace govern you. You've got to know that God is that peace that you're going to have to have to make it. Now, you've got to learn to do it when there isn't peace around you. When your mind is painting those pictures, you've got to do something about it. You know, a lot of times I pull myself into the Lord, and I tell the Lord, you've got peace the world doesn't have. You've got a peace that passes all my mind's understanding. Like, I enjoy walking into conflict with you, God. Like, you're fun. You've never run off and left me in the middle of a conflict and left me fighting and you take off. I run out a few times, but you never have. Lord, I really enjoy these things with you. I'm not only going to have peace, but I think I'm going to have a little joy. Like this one seems like a doozy. I've got a crazy person with me today. And I'm like, but Lord, you always, you're a lot of fun in it. You always flip the tables. Let's see what you're going to come up with today. And then the devil reminds me, you don't have a bat's idea what you're going to tell them. You don't even have a game plan. This is the dumbest idea ever. You're going to look like a fool. This whole thing's going to fall on you. And I'm like, but Lord, you always come up with something really wise. And I'm going to get real peaceful because when I get peaceful, I can hear that still, small voice tell me what to do. This is called being in charge of your peace. Pulling into that peace that the world doesn't have. Because literally, I can tell you now, the world doesn't have it. When the peace is pulled out the world, now we can really say, peace the world doesn't have. <laughs> I have, because peace lives inside of me. Peace is a person. Peace with me is very intentional. I do not want to walk in a different realm. So when something happens that makes you want to throw away your peace which is all the time. That's not just you. It happens to everyone. Something happens and you think, oh, if you knew what just happened to me, or worse than that, if you knew the five things that just happened to me all the way around me, you would understand why I chunk my peace. Like anyone would chunk their peace at this moment. And you have to stop and tell yourself, I have a split second to make a choice. And you can make a choice for peace or you can make a choice against peace. A split second. And you ask yourself the question, is this worth losing my peace over? Is what's just happened worth losing my peace over it? And if I lose my peace, will it help me? Will it bring any kind of good? Does it bring any kind of good fruit to lose my peace and give up? You know, just surrender. 
dead in the water. Scream like you're crazy. Let everyone know what you're going through. Will losing my peace help me? So, this is where I came to. I put my finger on it, on the timeline. And I said, this is where, in Revelation 6, 4, the angel and the red horse, to some degree, the peace is pulled off the earth. So, how I would invite you to prepare is choosing peace in each situation. Getting up in the morning time and saying, Lord, today I want to choose peace for this day. When I face something, I'm going to face it with your wisdom. I'm going to face it with your courage. I'm going to face it hearing your voice. I'm going to face it with the fact that I'm your sheep and I can hear you speak to me. There's so many things you can tell yourself I'm going to face this with. If you've got your peace, you can face it in so many different ways. Don't choose the worst way, the most pathetic way. Don't be like those disciples running up and down the boat and God's madder at you than he is the problem. <laughs> be intentional about your peace. Where are we on the timeline and what we can do about it? Those are the subjects that we explore in here. It's not just an intellectual thing of, well, I can tell you from all my scholarly study and research that we're at this place on the timeline, but I'm telling you what we can do about it because believe me, the sands of prophecy are shifting sands, moving parts, and we might can just make a difference in the world we're living in, especially with all those good things God's given us like authority and promises and presence. Amen. <laughs> Everybody, every Christian needs to hear that one.